And isn't it wonderful to be here this morning on this extended weekend worshiping the Lord together? I'm always excited when I get an extra day to, to potentially sleep in. So I can hear an amen for that. Who here loves sleeping in? I know I do. So, <laughs> well, uh, well, speaking of weekends, this, this past weekend, Tori and I, we kind of took a, a miniature vacation to, to just get away for a bit. And we, we actually did a, a Great Lakes tour uh, of sorts. And so first, it was uh, last Friday, we, we drove up north for a bit, at least from our perspective, up north for a bit. We went kind of on the coast of Lake Huron in the Alpena area for the night. And then the next morning, we, we drove back across the state to, to Lake Michigan side. And, and we swam in both of those lakes, by the way. But, uh, but then we went up to St. Ignace and for, the, for the next night, and, which was a lot of fun. There's fudge there, so that's always a lot of fun. Uh, and, then, and then on Sunday, we went up even further north to Lake Superior, and we swam at, at Whitefish Point. And all in all, it was a lot of fun. It was really refreshing. The water was a little cold, I have to admit. Uh, but, it, but seeing all three Great Lakes in kind of the span of a couple of days was, was really cool. But this type of trip meant that we were in the car a lot. And we got to live out a bit of nostalgia by listening to the old CDs that we found kind of underneath our seat and inside of the glove compartment way in the back. But, but mostly, we, we talked and we reflected on how this, this past summer has, has gone for, for Tori and I. And after talking, one of, one of the real highlights of our summer was, was this. And so this past May, I was privileged to officiate my younger brother's wedding and welcome his, his now wife, Kayla, into our family. And you can kind of see my, my goofy face in the background appropriately blurred out of the picture. Uh, but, but this was a, a really, really fantastic moment for a number of reasons. I've, I've done a few weddings before, but I've never done one for somebody so close. And my dad, he was also the best man. And a bunch of my brother and I's childhood friends were the groomsmen, so for that reason, it was just a really touching moment. Uh, but just, just hearing my younger brother make these commitments to his now wife was really also extremely special. They, they exchanged rings. They read little notes to each other. They had a, a short unity candle celebration, and, and they promised to live together in the covenant of marriage to comfort each other despite life's circumstances or sicknesses, and they vowed to remain faithful to one another for a lifetime. And all in all, it was, it was a very wonderful wedding, and I was blessed to be a part of it in, in, in such a small way. However, this morning, I am reminded of another wedding, one that was not so wonderful, one that was not so glamorous, and one where the vows exchanged were rather one-sided. And I'm, I'm talking about the, the very scandalous marriage between the prophet Hosea and his unfaithful bride Gomer, as recorded within the very first book of the Minor Prophets. But before we get into the details of all of that, let's just pause for a quick moment and turn to the Lord with a word of prayer. Bow with me, if you will. Lord God, we thank you for the unrelenting love that you show us. Even when we are unfaithful to you, you love us anyway. 
when we were still sinners, enemies, you bought us with your blood. As we consider the words of Hosea, remind us of this and convict us to learn the love and learn to love like you and live in such a way through the power of the Spirit that might show others your transformative love and action. Lord, I ask that you only allow me to, to speak what you wish to be heard. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Despite Hosea being the very first book in the Minor Prophets, this is actually the last sermon of our Minor Prophets series. We've, we've really jumped around quite a bit. We haven't gone in, in chronological order, but more of a thematic order, and, and because of that, we're ending here. But I, I think that we have saved the best for last if you can even qualify books of the Bible that way. I'm not sure if that's allowed, but I think we have saved the best for last. But Hosea is also a really hard book to read. I feel the need to say that up front. If you have never read it before, it's, it's a bit upsetting, to say the least. It's, it can be classified as something called shock literature, and it is unpleasantly vivid at times. Hosea is not... A really a, a popular level type of, of story. But that is, that's kind of the point, actually. And I will, I will get into more of what I mean by that in a minute. But, but it's also probably important to understand how the book of Hosea is, is structured. And so there are two main sections of this book. So chapters 1 through 3, they record a poetic rendition of the story of Hosea's life. And then chapters 4 through 14, they kind of fill in the blanks and they supply us with the preaching that Hosea did while he was acting as God's prophet. And so what I, what I plan on doing this morning is focusing heavily on this side of things, on Hosea's life for chapters 1 through 3. And there will be times where we are going to pull from his preaching as well, uh, as, as this does help our understanding uh, of why some of these events happen in, in this book. But Hosea's relationship is going to be our primary focus. And then, like we've done for all of the other minor prophets that we've looked at in this series, we will conclude by, by attempting to think out a bit of application and, and how this message should and could be applied to, to our day and, and our time and even in this church now. But let's begin by reading the rather scandalous story to, or at least the, the start of the scandalous story of Hosea. And it, and it reads something like this. Hosea 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, and that's Jeroboam II, by the way, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Again, I said it was a little scandalous. Verse 3. So he went, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblime, and she conceived and bore him a son. And this then leads to the first point in our bulletin notes this morning, which reads, number one, the Lord calls the prophet Hosea to marry an adulterous woman, symbolically representing his relationship with Israel. The, the Old Testament prophets, 
they were a unique bunch of, of people. Throughout this, this sermon series, that has probably been pretty apparent. They definitely had a, a lot of strange things to say. Remember, a few months ago now, we, when we looked at the book of Zechariah, my, my favorite part of that is that rock with seven eyes. Remember that passage? Uh, strange things to say. Uh, but, it's, but it's also the case that God gives his prophets strange things to do uh, as well. So another book, another callback. If you remember when we talked about the book of Jonah, you might remember that he was called to go and preach God's forgiveness right in the capital of Israel's worst political enemy at that time. But some of the major prophets have had, well, really had even weirder assignments than some of these minor prophets. Isaiah 20 tells us that God commanded Isaiah to preach naked for three years as a sign of what the Lord was going to do to the nations who opposed God's people. He was going to strip them bare. That's kind of weird, right? Uh, it gets weirder. So Jeremiah, he, he was called to do something similar in Jeremiah 13. He was instructed to go out and buy a loincloth, wear it for a little bit without washing it, and then he was to go and hide it in a rock, only to then retrieve it sometime later. And he kind of exclaims, wow, it's rotten. That's, that's pretty gross, right? Uh, but, but Ezekiel actually had it a lot worse. He was commanded to not speak for a long, long while. Ezekiel, he had to remain mute, uh, but that didn't mean that the Lord didn't speak through him during this time. So instead of talking, God instructs Ezekiel to make some toy army men out of clay and reenact what would happen to Israel in the near future. That's a fun part of the Bible. Uh, he could also only eat food made from barley and only cook that food over cow dung, and also disgusting. Uh, and there was even a time where he was instructed to go into the city square with a sword and shave off the hair on his head and shave off the hair on, in his, on his beard, burn half of it, and, and make the, the other half into clothing. So, so as you can see, it was actually somewhat normal for biblical prophets to preach through the things that they did. And these messages without words would often be shocking and startling and heavily symbolic in the way that they presented God's message to his people during that time period. And Hosea is no different because his marriage to Gomer functioned as a, as a real-life picture of God's relationship with the people of Israel. Hordom, wine and new wine, take away their understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. The people of God had fallen into the trap of, of religious syncretism. So, so Jeroboam II, mentioned in, in verse 1 of Hosea, was, was a terrible king who led the people down the, the path of idolatry, and, and it really kind of seemed like the people of Israel really didn't mind worshiping the true God right alongside these, these false gods, these, these pagan ones. They, they'd cut down a tree, and they'd make half of it into an idol, and the other half they'd use for a, for a walking stick. They would, they would pray to Yahweh in the temple, but, but also participate in, in cult prostitution in the high places of the Baals. Why? Likely they, they feared that if they didn't do so, their crops wouldn't grow, or they would have fertility issues of some kind or another, but, but God promised to, to bless them and not curse them if they were faithful to his commandments. Israel, they had a trust issue. 
they had a forgetfulness issue. That is, that is definitely apparent. Uh, but, but Israel, they also had unfaithfulness issues in, in other ways, too. And so here's Hosea 11, 1 through 5. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and, and burn, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. So, so again, during the time of Hosea, the northern kingdom was in kind of a political crisis. Jeroboam II did bring stability to their land, but, but at, a, at a cost. And, and at this time also, Egypt, sometimes when we think of the Bible, we think of Egypt being this big, massive, crazy, overpowering nation. And that is true for the beginning portions of the Old Testament. But at this time, Egypt was a weakened nation. But weak nations can grow stronger if they absorb smaller nations and their resources. And Israel felt threatened by this. And they, they thought that this might happen to them, and so they started you know, offering tribute to the new strong kid on the block who was, who was slowly starting to rise up, the nation of Assyria. And they thought that, that Assyria might be able to guard them against these attacks from, from other foreign powers, and many of the northern kings, if you remember back to First uh, Chronicles 28, many of these northern kings, they started to actually pay the nation of Assyria for protection. <laughs> However... The Lord, through Hosea, reminds Israel that he is the one who has really been protecting them. He was the one who taught them to walk, and he was the one who provided for them. They're, they're dabbling with these political alliances, in a sense, was like them cheating on their first love. But their infidelity, it wasn't, wasn't really an, a new problem. It has just now come to its boiling points. Hosea 13, 9 through 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. In other words, God had been accommodating Israel and their unfaithfulness to him as their sole ruler and protector for a long, long time. In fact, this, this passage, it, it harkens back to that section of 1 Samuel where the people of God demanded to have a king like the nations. In fact, that's, that's one of the stories in the Bible that really just, just rips in my heart, but it harkens back to that 1 Samuel passage where they demand a king like the nations and, and God gave them their wish but he declared and told Samuel that this was an act of rejection. The people felt more comfortable trusting human kings and human princes and human rulers instead of the one who created everything, from King Saul to King Jeroboam II to Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria. Israel had been and had become really good at committing spiritual adultery by running to others for their needs instead of the one who loved them like a good husband loves his wife. So, the prophet Hosea was called to marry Gomer, and his life was meant to be a reflection of Israel's adultery. But let's continue on a bit farther. 
Hosea 1, 3b through 9. He, as in Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to take them away. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And then when she weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Number two, God commands Hosea to give his children symbol-laden names. So I was told that Tori had nursery today, so that she's sitting there. I will just say this up front. I did get permission to share this story. <laughs> so, uh, but I am I'm currently convinced that there is some sort of conspiracy happening under my nose in my, in my own household. Um, and, and I don't know if this has been the same for any of you here. And I'm talking particularly to those of you who have, who have had kids. Uh, but Tori... She kind of has this, this working list of names to be well prepared for when we have children in the future. And I should say, we're not expecting, we, we, we don't, uh, she's not pregnant, we don't plan on having kids right now. Uh, and this list has, has been in existence for, for really a long time, many, many years. But it always seems to get updated every few months, uh, even, even despite that fact. But, but here is the conspiracy, and here is what I think is actually going on in, in, in guys who maybe have had kids, um, let me know later if this has been the case for you too. Uh, but sometimes, Tori will come up to me and she will tell me that she has got a new name idea that she would like me to consider. <laughs> and not always, but, but it's often the case that these names are really, really strange from my perspective at least. Uh, for, so for example, here's a few of the names that she's given me. Um, Mosaic Jane. So that's, that's kind of strange, right? So back me up, hopefully. Um, Lake Hetzel. Um, so Lake is a little better than, than Mosaic, but, but she, will, she will then, after she suggests these kind of names, she will then suggest some more normal sounding names, or, or maybe a name that I previously said I don't like, I'm not super into, but in comparison to something like Lake, it sounds a whole lot better. And so, so what, I think, you know, what, I, what I think Tori's doing is she is secretly packing her name list with bad ideas, so she can lead me to the names that she actually likes, right, uh, before I say no. If she gives me enough mosaics, uh, maybe I'll say yes to the names like Oliver and, and things like that. So if guys, let me know if this has been the case for you. Uh, I, I look forward to those conversations. But, but even if I am right, none of the bad names that Tori has come up with even compare to what the prophet Hosea had to name his children. Hosea and Gomer, they named their firstborn Jezreel. Why? Because in just a little while, the Lord was going to punish the lineage of King Jehu because, of they, because they spilled innocent blood in the valley of Jezreel. So this firstborn of, 
of Hosea and Gomer was to be a reminder and a warning of what was to come. And what was to come? The end of the northern kingdom of Israel. But, and, and with the next two kids, if, if you look carefully there, I don't know if you have your Bibles open, but if you look carefully there, the text, it changes a bit when it describes their birth. Instead of it saying that Gomer bore Hosea a son, like it did in, in verse 3, now it just says that she conceived again. So this was Gomer's kid, but not Hosea's. Different dads. She had been unfaithful to him within their, their marriage. And nevertheless, and despite her unfaithfulness, Hosea, he doesn't just take off, though. We can assume that he, he sticks around to care for this child as his own because another one comes soon right after his, his daughter's weaned, right? But again, there's no mention of Hosea being the biological father of this third child either. Verse 8 simply states that sometime later, Gomer conceived again, and it was another son. Not Hosea's, but another son nonetheless. And, and these, these kids, they both get really unusual names too, even weirder in my opinion than, than Jezreel. Gomer's daughter is given the name Lo Ruhamah, which is Hebrew for no mercy. And an explanation for this follows in, in verse 6. God is not going to have mercy on the house of Israel. He is going to bring an end to the tender feelings he once had for the people of the northern kingdom, and he will not rescue them when they fall into enemy hands. If they want Assyria as their king, they can have them. If they want to worship idols alongside the Lord, they can do so. But they need to, to realize that the Lord will show them no mercy when punishing them for their actions. For, for Judah, it'll be a different story, but not for the northern kingdom of Israel. And it should probably be mentioned, especially if you are following along in a Bible with me right now, that the ending of verse 6 is different depending on which Bible translation that you're reading. So some, like the NIV and the ESV and a few others, like the NRSV and such, they, they say that God, they basically say that God is saying that he will not forgive them at all. Um, others, though, like the CSB and the KJV, say that God is going to take them away. And this is because the Hebrew verb used in the original language, this was written in, can mean both, actually. Uh, but in my opinion, the second option is the better option here. So I don't know what your Bible says, but I think the second option is better here because that's reality, right? Israel was taken away. They folded like a cheap tent under the Assyrian war machine and were carried off into exile under King Sargon II. God did not show them mercy in that instance. The third child mentioned is given the name Loami, which is Hebrew for not my people. Israel had broken their covenant with the Lord just over and over and over again. They had been unfaithful for too long. More so, they had spent so much time with other nations that they had begun to act just like them. No longer were they acting as God's set-apart nation. They had become indistinguishable from their neighbors. Because of their infidelity, they didn't even look like God's people anymore. So, that is how the Lord was going to treat them. And again, I hope you can see what, what, what's happening here. Through the prophet's relationship with his unfaithful wife, and through the names of these children born from other men, the Lord is amplifying a message that really, really needed to be heard. Israel was being unfaithful. They were committing 
spiritual adultery. What they were doing to the Lord was sinful. It was dirty. It was scandalous. It was ugly. And through the prophet Hosea, God was holding up a mirror so they could understand this plainly. However, that's, that's actually not where the story ends. That'd be scandalous enough, right? <laughs> but that's, that's not where the story ends. There's still a bit more. And because Hosea isn't a narrative text, but a minor prophet, not everything in this book is directly chronological. He adds a bit of prophetic declaration between these two episodes, and we kind of need to piece some things together when, when reading uh, between them, and because it seems like somewhere along the way, things don't really get better for, for Hosea, but they get a lot worse. And not only does Gomer have children outside of their covenant relationship as husband and wife, but she ends up running away from home completely. Maybe it was because she was sick of being married to a prophet. Maybe it was because of those awful names. I understand that, right? We, we, aren't, we aren't told the reason, but we do know that the next time we see these two together, their life situation looks a whole lot different. So here's what I mean by this. Hosea 3, 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman. This is talking about Gomer. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a home on a lectath of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, or pillar, without ephod or household god. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So to explain, instead of sticking with the prophet and raising these children together, Gomer deserts Hosea and he runs off with another man who in turn sells her into slavery. God instructs Hosea to go and buy her back. Now, I don't know why it was a big deal that Israel loved cakes of raisins, except for the fact that raisins are of the devil, and they should always be replaced with chocolate chips. Um, and, that, and that's just a hint, by the way, for anyone who signs up for the cookie thing. Amen? Yeah, amen. So, but I, I don't understand the cakes of raisins, right? But I, but I think I might understand a bit of what Hosea must have been thinking when hearing this command from the Lord. He, he probably was thinking something along the you've got to, you're crazy. You, haven't, I, haven't I done enough, God? Why should I be faithful to this woman who has done nothing but act unfaithful toward me? At least if I was in Hosea's shoes, if I'm being honest, that might be how I react. But the text, it actually does not record this type of reaction. It only records Hosea's obedient actions, right? And if you dare, if you dare, try to picture this unglamorous scene in your mind in the way that it must have unfolded. There, there was Gomer. And who knows how many men she'd been with since she left, right? Who knows how many of these men promised her the moon and abused her and abandoned her? 
but now she is for sale as a slave. And think about this, 15 shekels of silver and roughly 10 bushels of barley, that is really, really, really cheap. Normal prices during those times were double that easily, even for, for cult prostitutes. So, uh, yeah, so maybe that meant she'd been for sale for a while. Maybe, maybe that meant nobody wanted her anymore, so they had to, to lower the price, right? But, but, but God tells Hosea to go and to buy her back, and he does. And think about this. He tells her that you must dwell as mine, you will belong to me, and I will belong to you. Even though you have cheated on me countless times, I will take you back, and I will love you as my wife. Don't run after these other men any longer, because even in your lowly state, I want you as my own. And the explanation of this action comes next, right? The nation of Israel, yes, it will be punished for their sinfulness, it will be punished for their rebellion. This will be a fitting but helpful corrective to get them back to where the Lord wants them to be. They will be carried off into exile. Assyria and Babylon will ravage their land. But after this, the covenant relationship between them and the Lord will be restored. Those who are called not my people and those who have been nothing but unfaithful to God will be brought back even though they don't deserve it whatsoever, and even though their adultery has stained them with ugly stains, God will pursue them, and he will lovingly pay the price for them. As Hosea puts it in an earlier oracle, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like sand in the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall then be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall grow up from the land, for great shall be the day of Israel. Like, like Hosea did for his wife Gomer, God will lovingly pursue his rebellious people. And even when they don't love him, he will love them anyway. And that's, that's the message of the prophet Hosea. And really, I, I, I think that's the, the message of the entire corpus of the minor prophets itself. Even when the people of God don't love him, he will still love them. Even when we are unfaithful to the Lord, he remains faithful to us, and he longingly calls us back into a relationship with him, right? But as we, as we, as we bring this sermon series to a close... And just like we've done with all the others, I think it is more than appropriate to end, and at least attempt to end, on a few ways that we might be able to apply this particular message of Hosea to our, our life now. So here are just two final, uh, two brief thoughts along those lines. Number one, we might be called to live in a way that clearly puts on display the transforming power of the Lord. That is to say, sometimes... God uses circumstances in our lives to amplify the message that we preach. So sometimes God uses what we go through or specifically calls us into certain assignments to allow us to understand the gospel ourselves in a, in a deeper way. Think about it. Just about all of the other Old Testament prophets compare Israel's sin to adultery. 
many of them pick up on that metaphor in some way or another. There's Amos, there's Jeremiah, there's Isaiah, there's Ezekiel, there's Micah, there's Hosea. They all use it in their writings. But out of all of them, who do you think was probably the most effective in proclaiming that message? By obediently following God's plan, I bet that Hosea came to understand and empathize in a much fuller way with, with God's deep hatred for sin and his undeserving love for those who deserve no compassion. Hosea, he, he must have felt the pain of God, in at least a really a small way, by having an unfaithful wife. He, he, he knew what a broken covenant was in more than an intellectual type of way. He knew how adultery destroys a relationship. And through all of that, I imagine he must have just marveled at God's ability to love those who reject him. But not only did, did Hosea come to learn these things, but, but what he went through was not a private affair. Everybody must have known his business. And when he spoke God's words about spiritual adultery to the people of Israel, it must have been all the more real to them. And I'm not suggesting that God puts us in situations in life to crush us or to tempt us into sin. But I, I do think that the Lord does divinely direct our path at times so that we can be better witnesses for him in some way or another. So, so maybe you have gone through something tough, like a sickness or, or like a death, so that you can comfort those who are currently struggling. Maybe you had to learn the hard way so that you can better direct somebody else toward the easier and the safer path. Maybe you went through that period of heartache so that you can, be both, you can both better understand the love of God yourself as well as talk about it even clearer to other people who might not understand. Sometimes God uses the circumstances of our life to amplify the message that we preach. Here's the second thing. Maybe. There we go. Hosea didn't give up on Gomer, and God will not give up on you. Hosea committed himself to a marriage relationship with a partner who habitually failed to honor it. And God has committed himself to a relationship with a people who, who habitually failed to honor that. And in fact, all throughout history, humans have never honored any relationship we ever have entered with the Lord. For any relationship to exist and to flourish, there's got to be commitment on the side of both partners. But the, but the human side of this covenant has always been marred with disloyalty. We are just as incapable of faithfulness to God as Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. And consequently, we, like Gomer, have become enslaved. We're stuck in our sin. We cannot escape it on our own. But Gomer did not have to free herself from prostitution. She didn't have to clean herself up in order for Hosea to go and to buy her back. No, Hosea went and paid the price while she was still enslaved. And Israel, they, they never really cleaned up their act either. Yes, after they were sent into exile as punishment for their spiritual adultery, they, they began to see and understand God, God's will for the nation a bit better. They never really totally, completely reformed, though. However... God brought a, a remnant of his people back regardless, not because they deserved it, but because of his love for them. And all in all, I think this paints a really great picture for us about how we might escape the bondage of sin. It is not 
that we have to clean ourselves up. It's not that we have to make a bunch of changes and then God will receive us. No. God has already paid the price for us. But instead of paying 15 shekels and a handful of barley, he sent his son to earth to shed his blood and to die on our behalf. Both the story of Hosea and the story of Jesus show us that acceptance and forgiveness and unconditional love come first and then change comes later. But what about, what about those people who keep messing up and, and keep turning their back on God, right? What about those people who have a relationship with the Lord but, but keep falling into sinful habits just over and over and over again? Will God still call them his own? Hosea's answer is that no one has ever deserved or earned God's favor. It's always a free gift to those of us who are unworthy. God's will for our lives is interrupted by our unfaithful action, yes, and we really should strive to keep our covenant with him. That is true, but his overpowering compassion is not quenched by our temporary rejections. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, and as Marie prayed during her prayer, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes God uses the circumstances of our lives to amplify the message that we preach. And Hosea did not give up on Gomer. God did not give up on his people in the time of the minor prophets. And Jesus has not given up on you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message of Hosea. We thank you that despite all of our serious shortcomings and and our ugly, scandalous, terrible sin. You love us anyway. And just like Hosea paid the price to buy Gomer back from slavery, you have paid the price to free us from our slavery. Lord, allow us to accept your offer. Allow us to recognize your love and out of gratitude turn from our spiritual adultery. But most importantly, God, help us realize that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus our Lord. It's his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.